Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Convos with Dr. Kate. Happy end of the year. Happy holiday season. I know the holidays can be joyous and they can also be difficult. So I really hope that you all are able to find some peace and rest uh, this holiday season. And this episode, I am chatting with Dr. Christy Ziegler from Duke University on a long-term study that is at least in part funded by the FDA. And the goal is to improve an assessment tool for measuring communication uh, for people with Phelan-McDermott syndrome and other neurodevelopmental disorders. And we've been working with her team for over a year now, and we have a really good conversation about why this tool needs to be improved, what work they've done with families so far to get feedback, and what the progress has been. And we've been doing this also in partnership with Kirshank and Combined Brain, uh, which is a group that has several rare disorders within it. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. I think it's a great one. And I've been enjoying seeing your feedback on combos with Dr. Kate because it's been a year. And please keep sending that feedback because we'd really like to keep improving the podcast. So until next time. Hi, Christy. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Would you be willing to give us a brief introduction of your background and your current position? Yes, absolutely. Um, So I am currently a faculty member at Duke University in the School of Medicine. So I sit in the Department of Population Health Sciences, and I'm one of the core faculty members in the Center for Health Measurement. And so I am a statistician and psychometrician by training. And so my work really focuses on developing modifying and using patient and family-centered outcome measures with a specific focus on rare disease, pediatrics, and clinical trials. Um, If it's a good time, I'll also give some disclosures for the conversation that we're having today. Absolutely. Awesome. So it's important to note the survey that we're talking about today. I'm one of the developers of that survey, so I have interest in its success. Um, It's also important to note that I'm here giving my own perspectives. And so I can't claim to speak on behalf of Duke University or our funders or anybody else. Thank you so much for those. That really helps. And thank you for your background. So you mentioned outcome measures and Mm -hmm. we're about to jump into that, but we at the foundation are actively involved in one of the projects that you lead uh, to improve a clinical assessment tool, or as we've called it, an outcome measure for communication in neurodevelopmental disorders and communication is a huge priority area for our families and many others. And before we get into the specifics of what the tool is, can you describe for families listening what an outcome measure is? Yes. So an outcome measure is a standardized assessment of how a person is feeling, functioning, or surviving. And a great example of an outcome measure would be a survey that you would get at your doctor's office asking you about how you're feeling, how you're doing. I would like to elaborate on the importance of outcome measures, especially in clinical studies when you're trying to see if a treatment or some kind of intervention is working well, you need to measure the outcomes um, in different areas. And so families in with Phelan-McDermott syndrome are very familiar that sometimes these tools don't accurately measure um, the capabilities of their loved one with Phelan-McDermott syndrome. And that can be challenging, uh, not only for them, but also for the folks running the clinical study, because you'd like to be able to know 
um, and see improvement. And sometimes if families are already at a baseline on a measure, that can be hard to see. So we in our community have been talking a lot about how uh, improved measures or different types of measures are so important to families, including communication. So I just wanted to highlight that. And this outcome measure in particular is called the ORCA. Uh, can you explain what that stands for and what it generally measures? Yes, I can. So ORCA stands for Observer Reported Communication Ability Measure. So Observer Reported um, means in, in this context that it was designed for parents or caregivers of children who observe their children, obviously, and the experts of their children throughout the daily life. Um, and then we're, we're aiming to measure communication ability. So in this case, we've defined it as typical communication across um, a whole battery of expressive, receptive, and social communication behaviors. And why have you sought to make improvements on the measure for people with neurodevelopmental disorders? Yes, so the measure was originally developed for individuals with Angelman syndrome through a, a contract with the Foundation for Angelman Syndrome Therapeutics. We also did some additional work looking at its usefulness for children with Rett syndrome. Um, and when we were working on those projects, we were really struck by how communication kept coming up across different communities, um, different neurodevelopmental disorders as being a really high priority for families. Um, and so we really wanted to know if that original measure was useful for other neurodevelopmental disorders and if it captured communication behaviors of those children in an accurate way. And if it really also captured what parents found most meaningful and valuable mm -hmm. about their communication and the ways that they were interacting with their child. So did you find any any gaps there and wanting to improve it based off of that? Well, I think one of the things that um, was really important for us to focus on is how different communication presents across different families, across different diagnoses. And one of the, the important components was really how children communicate. So a lot of existing measures, even for very young children, quickly focuses on verbal speech. Mm -hmm. But we know that kids communicate in lots of other ways, especially if they don't have access to verbal speech for whatever reason. So we wanted to be very inclusive of um, sounds, using their eyes to communicate, using gestures, modified gestures, and also assistive devices um, in our measure of communication ability. And so looking across different diagnoses, um, you know, there's different levels of mobility, different levels of cognition, different other, uh, you know, seizures, clinical aspects that were important to look at. So we wanted to make sure that um, whatever measure we present and offer to these communities is, is doing the best job it can to capture those different, those differences. And this work started last year and we took part and we've engaged with you along with a lot of other neurodevelopmental disorder groups, specifically within um, combined brain. And so um, with the, a lot of these groups have similar symptoms uh, to people with Phelan McDermott syndrome and similar challenges, but can you tell us generally what was done last year? Yeah, absolutely. So this project actually started uh, a little bit over two years ago. And since then we have conducted 115 interviews with caregivers 
whose children had 12 different neurodevelopmental disorders. And so 10 of those parents had children with, with PMS. We also conducted nine interviews with um, what we call clinical experts. So these were folks that had um, training and education and care for children with these different neurodevelopmental disorders. So folks like speech language pathologists, medical doctors, as well as special education teachers. What types of engagement did you have with families in this initial phase? What kind of things did you ask them? Yes. So we did qualitative interviews one-on-one. So we had, you know, somebody from our team sit down virtually or on the phone with a parent. And we there were really two parts to this conversation. The first part was really um, asking parents to describe their child's typical communication. <clears throat> and so the reason that we did this is um, we can't measure something without really understanding it, right? So we wanted to get examples of communication behaviors. We wanted to look at similarities and differences um, within the neurodevelopmental disorder samples that we focus on, but also across them. Um, and so we, we wanted to look at the categories of communication um, that are currently on the measure and see if what parents talked about um, just naturally when they were talking about their children, if those matched with the measure. So what we found in that portion of the interview um, was that the categories of communication um, were really relevant across families. So things like their child making requests, knowing what their child wanted, knowing what their child didn't want, um, and then also how they knew their child was understanding their communication with the child, as well as that social interaction. What we also found, um, which I don't think is a surprise to families, is that communication is very um, heterogeneous. So it's different mm -hmm. across family, across ch the child, and the way that the child communicates really speaks to that differences. You know, eye gaze, gestures, verbal speech, assistive technology. And for our sample of PMS families, we really saw um, all of that diversity show up. So children who were using verbal speech, um, children who were not and who are using other modes of communication. And so there will be results from this that will be published publicly and that we can share with the community um, beyond the general takeaways. Um, is that true? And is there a, a timeline for that? Yes. So we actually um, presented some of this initial qualitative work at a conference in October. So it's the International Society for Quality of Life Research. We had a poster that we presented there. And the abstract actually just came out in a supplement um, for the Quality of Life Research Journal. So I'm happy to share that link um, with, with you all to disseminate it's only an abstract, so it's a very short mm -hmm. overview of what we found um, for the first portion of the interviews. Um, we also are working on a manuscript, which is sort of the traditional way that we disseminate results in academia, but knowing that can take you know, a long time, sometimes years to get that out. We're also working on other um, dissemination materials that we're gonna share back with the communities who participated um, that we're, we're hoping to roll out in early January, 2024. Thank you. And we will help to circulate that once it is out and summarize it for families because I know they'll be really interested in it. And you mentioned variability uh, and failing McDermott syndrome, that's certainly true. We have a lot of people with failing McDermott syndrome that are nonverbal or minimally verbal um, and who uh, struggle with communication. Is there 
a possibility as you adapt this that um, even with adaptation, it'll be hard to accurately capture communication? Or are there any challenges that you're facing? Yeah, so I, I think I'll start by saying no measure is a perfect measure. There's always going to be noise in the signal or measurement error, right? Um, but I think the way that we've set up this project and sort of the way that we're building in each phase on the evidence gathering, I think we're in a really good place to understand the strengths of the measure and the weaknesses of the measure um, so that we can clearly communicate that to the end users. So folks that wanna use it in research, in clinical care and clinical trials. I would say that the nonverbal or minimally verbal characterization of communication is actually something that would um, you know, make me feel really good about the fit of like the actual communication behavior that we're observing and what's on the measure because the ORCA is specifically designed to capture those um, nonverbal communication behaviors. Um, I think the other thing that is, that makes me really optimistic that at the end of this, we'll have something that's useful, if not perfect, is in the second half of the interview, we took that old, or not old, but the original version of the measure and we showed it to parents and we had them fill it out. And then we also asked them questions to gauge their understanding um, and the applicability of the questions to capture their, their child's specific experience. Um, and I think in those that, that phase of the work, we found some items that worked really well across all of the groups that we had in our sample. We also found some items that we need to improve, right? So mm -hmm. modifications that we're going to be making to make it more relevant to more families. So I think there's um, there's more work to be done, but we have that planned over the next couple of years. A lot of these outcome measures, you know, they need to be validated in a large in a large group of people over time to show that this is a reliable tool to measure this area. And so we appreciate that this is a long-term goal and outcome measures are sometimes uh, used even if they are not the perfect fit first and then might be adapted later or, or better tools uh, might be found later. So we are really appreciative that this is happening in, in the area of communication. I think ORCA, the ORCA has already been used as an exploratory measure for Phelan McDermott syndrome in its current state um, in a couple of studies, but mm -hmm. improvements are very welcome by our families. So um, this is, I just wanna highlight that this is a, a why this kind of takes a while and, and how robust it needs to be for um, a regulatory group like the FDA to say, you know, this, this is a good fit for this population and for testing um, a certain treatment. Yeah, I think that's a very important note because often um, I think folks are surprised, including myself, when you think about how much energy and attention is, is being paid um, and resources devoted to developing outcome measures, right? Especially for clinical trials. But clinical trials are high stakes um, decisions, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot, of, our children's health is at stake. There's risks, there's side effects. There's a lot of money on the table. Um, and so I think the focus on measures for clinical trials is because we want to get it right. 
right? Mm -hmm. We don't want to say yes to something that's not actually working. And we don't want to say no to something that has the potential to improve health, right? So making sure that the measures are as rigorous as possible and grounded in families' meaningful experiences, right? So we're, we're measuring what is important to families uh, sets us up to make those decisions in a way that is, you know, putting us in the best position moving forward. And this work is now continuing. You mentioned the first phase where there was a survey for families and there were two parts. And now we've been in discussions about helping to continue with this study uh, with funding from with funding from the FDA for you all. And what are some of the next stages of the project after you had that initial interaction with families, what's happening in the future? So as as measure developers, I don't think we ever feel like we're done. Um, you know, we can continue to evaluate measures forever. And sometimes that actually is good, right? Because circumstances change, treatments change. Um, but what we're working on right now is we're taking all of that rich qualitative data um, that we got from parents, generously got from parents, um, and we are making modifications to the measure itself. So we'll have a new version that we're going to do another round of qualitative interviews to test out those modifications. So the way that we typically do this is we have a round where we interview a number of parents, we pause, we analyze our data, we figure out what's working, what's not, um, we might make additional modifications and then we test those again. So that's really what's planned for 2024. The next phase after that is really a quantitative analysis of the measure. So this is where we push out the survey in electronic form to as many families as we possibly can get. And we look at quantitative aspects of reliability and validity. So that's where we look at that stability over time. Um, we look at responsiveness to change. If the child's communication is improving, we wanna make sure that the score is also changing in the right direction um, and so on and so forth. And a reminder for families about how they can hear more about this as it, as it happens. All of our channels at the foundation, including our newsletter, email, social media, um, we will always let families know about upcoming studies, including this one that they can participate in. So keep an eye out for those as, as we at the foundation will put out those materials. And part of this effort focuses on diverse and underserved uh, patient populations, as many studies absolutely should. Um, and so can you comment on this or this, this goal to reach these families? Diversity and reaching underserved populations is, is really critically important, um, especially in the foundational qualitative work, right? Where we're trying to understand and describe the aspect of health that we're, we're trying to measure in this case, communication ability. So if we're missing a group of parents or families, um, we run the risk of having a measure that doesn't fully capture everybody's experience communicating with their child. We are really focused on paying attention, careful attention to the, the characteristics of and the backgrounds of all of the parents and caregivers that are enrolled in our study um, to maximize the differences that we see in the different folks that we talk to. Um, I think the other thing is that we're up against a lot of structural bar barriers around underrepresented groups that also impact clinical trial participation, mm -hmm. right? Who has access to genetic testing, who has interest in genetic testing, who has resources to participate in 
a one and a half hour qualitative interview, right? So um, one of the things that has been so helpful to us and we're so grateful for is foundations like this one and people like you, Kate, who have worked with us and collaborated with us on our processes so we can make sure that um, we are making those processes as inclusive as possible so that parents can participate and it's as easy as possible for parents to participate on top of all of the other things that they're worrying about and they're taking care of. You mentioned barriers to even getting diagnosed in the first place, which is a huge issue in many disorders similar to ours and for ours. And so I really appreciated working with you all and our team um, to make sure that we could represent um, diverse populations as a priority at the start of, of educating families about the study. So um, we really appreciate that priority and it's been, it's been nice to take part of. And can you explain why it's so important to do this work across other disorders and collaboratively Roughly how many other groups it's a, it, and it doesn't need to be an exact number, but are you working with and why is this important? Yes, this is something I feel really, really strongly about. So traditional measurement development um, and sort of what's agreed upon as best practice is typically done in silos, right? So we have one target population. It's usually like one specific diagnosis, maybe a specific age range. We do all this qualitative and quantitative work. Then if we wanna use that measure in a different target population, we repeat a lot of that work, again, to make sure that you know it is relevant and understandable and we're capturing those experiences. I think um, for rare diseases and pediatrics and genetic disorders, like that's not necessarily gonna work in the timeline that we need it to work in, right? Like science is moving forward. These therapies are coming into the pipeline we want the measures to be ready. Um, so we want to pay, these are high stakes decisions. We want them to be high quality measures, but I think we need to um, adapt our processes in order to make the best decisions about the measures and get them ready to be used in clinical trials, right? So that's one of the reasons I'm so excited to be leading this specific project is that we are able to look across and within 12 different neurodevelopmental mm -hmm. disorders um, and, and we're really able to see similarities and differences and um, hopefully set ourselves up at the end where other, other communities who want to use the ORCA measures don't have to wait five years. Mm -hmm. They can answer a smaller set of questions and, and understand if this is the measure or if another one would be, would be better for them. These cross-disorder research efforts are really important some some people in the community have said a phrase that I think is so true is that we are rare, but we are not necessarily unique in terms of a lot of our symptom areas. And that is certainly true uh, for a lot of disorders that are similar to ours. And we at the foundation have been focusing on this a lot, especially in the last year, but in more recent years on collaborative projects, especially for outcome measures, such as this one, there's also the Inchstone project that a lot of families have heard about that is across rare epilepsies. And we've participated in that to, again, adapt measures to make them more applicable to these families, including quality of life measures. Um, and we are part of several groups that do this cross-disorder uh, research, such as Agenda, 
uh, REN, we're Epilepsy Network, and in this case, we're working uh, with Combined Brain that has a lot of groups of neurodevelopmental disorders. So I think families should take heart that there's a lot of this cross disorder research going on, especially in the area of outcome measures to make sure we don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. Yeah, and I can say also, um, one additional thing is uh, on the back end with the end users, we've heard a lot from industry and regulatory folks that having a measure that is across, that can be used across disorders is really helpful for them too, because then they don't have to relearn or reevaluate all of this, you know, very detailed, sometimes hundreds of pages of documentation around an outcome measure for a specific clinical trial. They, they're like, oh, I know what this one means and I know generally how to interpret it. So it makes it easier for, for the users on the back end to, um, to perform this work and evaluate the work. And when we started out the conversation talking about the importance of outcome measures, I just wanted to highlight something you just said that industry partners want to be able to know if they can measure improvement with their with their treatment and that and that makes a lot of sense and so outcome measures are a big topic of conversation for us at the foundation when we engage with industry partners or engage them with key opinion leaders uh, such as folks in our natural history study and that's why these ongoing studies are so important are to be able to develop things that we've shown will work for failing McDermott syndrome and make the job of the industry partner that much easier to actually add Phelan McDermott syndrome to their pipeline, or once we are added, actually test a therapeutic. Um, so this all kind of falls into the category of, as we like to say, clinical trial readiness to have a lot of these things in place so that improvement can be measured accurately. Mm -hmm. And I think too, having families involved in this process, I feel very passionate about because clinical trials should be anchored in what the families need and want and find most meaningful for their loved ones, right? And so that's where I think the power from communities like yours, you really hold it, right? Because your experiences are the key to unlock what we need to measure and what we want these therapeutics to actually do for, for our loved ones. And some of them are more challenging than others. For instance, we've started this large cross-disorder research project called Candid that's focused on GI disorders and mm. measuring improvement um, with treatments for GI disorders. And uh, GI disorders are particularly complicated uh, to measure in the clinic, especially in people who are nonverbal. And so we're listening to families about what the top priorities are and trying to push forward each of these areas. And some of them might move forward a little faster than others, but things like having a patient-focused drug development meeting uh, with Kirshank and the FDA are really important for elevating families' voices. Um, and I think communication was up there on any, any time we asked, I think communication was pretty high up there. So, yeah. 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 And I think, you know, it makes me think again about the ORCA measure. It's right now it's about 80 items, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's relatively long for a, a survey, but it's it it reflects the complicated and um, different aspects of communication that we see in kids. So it's, and that we know that because we talked to families, right? And we heard all of these different ways that their children were communicating. So I think 
aspects of the measure and best case, the measure matches the actual experience of families. Um, and, and you're right, sometimes that can be very complex. Well, I think those were all the questions that I had for you today. Thank you so much for joining, Christy. I don't know if you had anything else you wanted to mention, but on behalf of the community, I just want to say thank you. And we will be circulating information about this shortly. Great. Yeah, just I'll add a thank you to you all um, and to the families and to Combined Brain, who we love to work with, and to the members of my team and our funders and our external advisory group as well. You know, measurement, I think, um, in science is never done in a vacuum. And so, um, yeah, very grateful to work in this field and work with wonderful folks um, like you all. Well, thank you so much and happy holidays. And we will see everyone next time. Thank you.